This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immune, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. So how do you like your 2011 so far? I hope it's off to a great start for you. Happy New Year. And as we say in Greek, Kronia Pola. Our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, is standing by. And in just a few moments, he'll join me. And uh, you're in for a real interesting ride. Let's put it that way. Tiger Woods. The possibility that he is, in fact, a Manchurian candidate, a super cyber athlete, to use Nelson's words, and uh, the the victim, really, of a mind control program that actually has its origins in Nazi Germany. We'll find all about that in uh, in just a moment. A little later in the program, peak oil. This is uh, an interesting uh, discussion we're going to have with Chip Haynes, who is the author of peak of the devil 100 questions about uh, peak oil and uh, we'll discuss what life will be like after oil uh, and in, and whether or not there is any truth to the theory that uh, oil in fact is a bionic that it is not the product of fossil uh, decaying uh, fossilized uh, plants and, and, and animals, uh, dinosaurs, but is in fact something that is produced almost continually, continuously deep within uh, the Earth's core. Chip Haynes coming up in Hour 2 to discuss peak oil. Tiger Woods, arguably the greatest athlete the world has ever known, certainly the wealthiest athlete the world has ever known. There's no disputing uh, that he is the greatest golfer there has ever been, but we've all been witness to the uh, unraveling and public disgrace of Tiger Woods. How did it all happen? Who is Tiger Woods? And perhaps more importantly, where did he come from? 
And where does his soon-to-be ex-wife, Ellen Nordgren, fit into all of this? Here to discuss, here to discuss the creation, that's right, the creation of Tiger Woods is media scientist Nelson Thal. Nelson, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, Richard. It's uh, great being back here. When we talk in terms of, or when you say that, that Tiger Woods was created, what are we talking about here? When you start to scratch the surface behind Tiger Woods and uh, examine the connections that uh, he and his father have had, um, you start to find some uh, unusual connections which you wouldn't think would be present for somebody who was a super athlete like Tyra Woods and was uh, in the golf industry. And uh, when we scratch the surface, what researchers uh, find is there's um, a lot of connections between him and um, uh, the uh, MK Ultra mind control project and uh, Operation uh, the Phoenix Program, CIA Phoenix Program. Well, his father, Earl, was a Green Beret in Vietnam. That's right. Uh, so is there some connection? I mean, the, the Green Beret, they were the elite uh, group. I mean, they uh, they were involved in, uh, there were certainly some very brave individuals in the Green Beret, but they were involved in some skullduggery, as I recall, assassination teams. And, oh, uh, yes. And uh, were they involved in, in, in the CIA MKUltra program? Oh, the, they were the stormtroopers of these programs. So, and, what was uh, what was the, the Phoenix Project? Well, the Phoenix Project really was a um, a program uh, that was using prisoner of war interrogation uh, techniques and trauma based interrogation techniques to to um, and uh, and uh, drugs to. Uh, practice mind control. I mean, it was basically under the Phoenix program uh, that uh, the CIA brought um, uh, Nazi war criminals' uh, work uh, to light and started to revive the mind control uh, Manchurian candidate type uh, uh, programming of soldiers uh, that the that the Nazis were doing under uh, under Reinhard Galen and um, Nazi war criminal uh, Fritz Kramer. So these uh, interrogation techniques uh, that were used on prisoners of war in Vietnam, as part of this Project Phoenix, then the suggestion is that Earl Woods, Tiger's father used the same type of techniques on his infant son? Well, we do find um, this in a lot of situations. First of all, it was Richard Helms, uh, well-known intelligence operative for the OSS, for the OSS during the war. It was Helms who welcomed Hitler's spymaster Galen and his spy network into the CIA, i.e. the U.S. government payroll, as a, quote, great intelligence producer, unquote. Now, uh, it's not uncommon when you look at uh, many of the operatives um, in the 60s and since that they use their sons um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Jim Morrison, we've talked about Jim Morrison of the Doors. And his father his was father an admiral. was not only an admiral, but was a, um, a major player in cooking up the uh, Gulf of Tonkin hoax that led to the Vietnam War. Right, right. Um, Duncan Cameron 
who also was part of a mind control operation. His father was a major colonel in the at Obergammergau in Germany, uh, bringing Nazi uh, war criminals uh, over to the United States. The it's not uncommon that we find the sons of these. Uh, colonels and generals and people involved in the military, it's not uncommon that we find their sons become guinea pigs in mind control experiments and other operations. So, but Earl's uh, motive for this might have been following uh, orders, following orders, or just selfish. He wanted to create a perfect athlete uh, in, in his son. Yes, I, I would imagine that it's it's merely following orders. He falls in line with a with with what exactly they're looking for and um and of course remember there's a lot of tiger woods that we haven't heard of that were failed like part of the experimentation that didn't work out we don't so they had they had great plans for tiger not just simply to become a super athlete but to become i mean his father used to brag that uh, that his son tiger would one day achieve greater things than buddha and gandhi so did he actually or did his handlers or overlords someday imagine that Tiger Woods would become you know president or something like that well remember that <clears throat> Mengele the the um, doctor from Auschwitz mm-hmm. wound up at China Lake California with the equivalent of a cray computer and an electron microscope mapping the genomes and started to genetically breed quote soldiers the type of soldier universal soldiers as right. the movie showed and the boys from brazil was another movie showing exactly how they were breeding using test tube developed babies we can call them clones but what they do is they use the genetic code to create a human life the mother and father is really a test tube but um, once the child is born, they hand the child over to pre-selective couples who have been also trained to be the child's mother and father. Right, and this is this this goes back to obviously uh, Germany when they wanted to uh, to 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 breed essentially uh, this ethnically pure Aryan. A race of uh, super soldiers, as you as you call them, uh, to, to you know to take over when the present uh, generation uh, of Nazis died off, uh, but they called these you know these the Liebensborn, but they were racially pure. Uh, why would they allow um, someone of mixed ethnicity, such as the Woods family, to get involved in such a program? Well, exactly. Himmler's Lebensborn infancy program was for world domination, and they sought to create programmed local, national, and world leaders, <clears throat> just as Earl Woods visualized for Tiger's future potential. Um, creating racially pure Aryan babies was the aim of the Lebensborn program, but it, that doesn't mean that um, they weren't also interested in breeding the various non-white uh, leaders for the non-white world. If you're interested right, in world right. domination, you want to make sure that in every country, in every tribal group, you have bred a leader. Ah, and so obviously, as long as they're under the under the uh, under an Aryan supervisor, I guess, uh, or a pure blood, then it would make no difference. 
to the Nazis if some of the you know those lower down in the rung were not Aryans themselves. I get it. Okay, so let me just recap. Nelson Thal is with us, media scientist, of course, the uh, the former uh, archivist of the great Marshall McLuhan, here to talk about the creation of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods as a Manchurian candidate. Uh, and, and all that implies, uh, uh, the allegation here is that his father, a Green Beret, Earl Woods, uh, involved in uh, the Phoenix program, which was an offshoot of uh, uh, sort of Nazi psychological warfare in which they, would inter- they, they utilized certain interrogation techniques and so forth. He used these techniques on his own infant son uh, in order to create this Manchurian candidate, Superhuman. We'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, delve further into the creation of Tiger Woods and also uh, discuss how his uh, estranged wife, Elgin Nordgren, fits into all of this. Much more awaits here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Nelson Thal is with us. Of course, the uh, media scientist and assassination researcher. You can also listen to his uh, podcast, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, and we'll tell you how to listen to that in a little bit. All right, back to Tiger Woods. So uh, what does that imply then? If he was a creation or uh, uh, his skills were developed through this Phoenix program, where they can create, they can they can create not only assassins but presumably super athletes. Does that mean then that when he was on the golf course and we see him doing his thing so well that he's in some sort of a trance? That that is one of his many personalities. Well, I think that um, there. I think that Mengele and his men uh, had a number of different programs. Once they had mapped the genome, they were interested in all sorts of experimentation. Breeding a a, a super golfer uh, would be a way, not necessarily of controlling and taking over the world, but it would be a great way of making money and bringing in tremendous amounts of funds. Let's remember that. Uh, uh, Tiger has become one of the most successful and prominent and wealthiest athletes on the planet. Uh, certainly, as a as an investment, he has brought a tremendous financial return. So it's not just to breed a particular person who's a Manchurian candidate who can become a leader, like the movie The Manchurian Candidate. Right. And I guess the point we're making here is that these Hollywood, we're not the only ones who ha- are talking about this hollywood has in the past been trying to certain people involved in these programs have gotten into hollywood and gotten into the movies and gotten these things out especially like movies of the manchurian candidate and the boys from brazil universal soldier we can see that there's been a lot of hollywood movies that are trying to show the cloning and the powerful technology that is behind the scenes that's not talked about in the mass media. Now, the bottom line myth of this, what they call the secret doctrine, is that people, this is from, from the, the Mengele, this is how Mengele thinks. Right. He believes that people of color are descendants of man-animal cohabitation. Well, of course he would. I mean, the Nazis were inherently, you know, racist, and and uh, right. which gave rise to their their racial hygiene laws. A contaminated human species in their mind. Right. Their twisted minds. Right. 
while Aryans are descendants of humans and gods, which in a distant and ancient past ruled the planet. They called themselves the Olympians. They thought they were on par with the, the, you know, the gods of the Greek pantheon. Right, right. So mythical pure-blood Aryan women such as Hélène and Josephine Nordegren uh, was the crown of the Lebensborn Himmler project. Wait a minute. Are you suggesting that the Nordgren twins and uh, and uh, uh, Ellen was a tiger's or is his estranged wife, Ellen and Josephine, the Nordgren twins, are also a product of this same program to create super babies. Absolutely. Okay. And they're uh, Swedish, of course. Yes. And they, I mean, they are. Sweden is one of the most uh, one of the most homogeneous. Uh, cultures anywhere. I mean, uh, so I, they, would, they would look to themselves, I guess, as being um, pure, pure Aryan. Is that right? Well, like Tiger, they would be guinea pigs and a blueprint to create super cyber mind-controlled uh, operatives, soldiers, or athletes, whichever you, was, the, was, the, was, the, was the particular person okay. being used. But so the impl- those two girls are definitely uh mingly women let's call them they're okay. mingly they've been they've been uh, their their true mother and father are not uh, uh the nordegrins though the, the nordegrins are uh <clears throat> part of the uh the um, Nazi international group of established people who are involved and aware of what's happening. Okay, we have to be careful. I mean, that's a very serious a- allegation when we, yeah. we, we, we cons- when we allege that Ellen and, and, and Josephine Nordegren's parents are part of the, uh, the Swedish Nazi elite. I mean, that's a very serious allegation, Nelson. I mean, how do you go about proving something like that? Um, if you start to look at the uh, Nordgren worked as a foreign correspondent for the Swedish national radio and we and and later in, in Berlin and when you look behind Thomas Nordgren and his wife you'll see that they are both uh, high level Swedish power brokers uh, with connections to um, the Galen. Uh, network, the MK Ultra network, and the Operation Monarch and Operation CIA Phoenix programs. So the idea here was that uh, Ellen and Josephine, a part of this Liebensborn program, uh, they were they were plants. They were taken over to the United States in order to arrange for Ellen to to meet and marry Tiger. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Exactly. Here, and Thomas Nordegren had his own talk show. He's a member of P1. Now, that's similar to the infamous International Criminal Pseudo-Masonic Lodge P2, Propagando Duo. And this is not uh, a speculation by us uh, or researchers. This is a, a known fact that he's a, a member of the P1. And the P2 Lodge uh, is named after the propaganda machine of Reich Minister Goebbels. Okay. So there's a heavy connection between Nordegren as Sweden's number one propagandist and Joseph Goebbels. Uh, and uh, they have deep family ties to the secret New World Order, global political power inner circles. Well, the, uh, the interesting thing is that, I mean, we tend to think of Sweden as being very socialist and left of center. Uh, but, but Sweden, uh, as I understand it, is one of the only countries that, that refuses to extradite uh, Nazi war criminals that still live in Sweden. Exactly. Sweden refuses to expedite uh, or prosecute its Nazi collaborators or war criminals. Exactly. 
So it's uh, and of course uh, the Nazi hunter boss Sean uh, revealed that at least 260 Swedes had served in the Waffen SS, and they were all being protected by the Swedish government. Uh, without going into it, a lot of the Swedish uh, Nazi hunters have been um, have been winding up. Uh, Stieg Larsson uh, and boss Sean have uh, definitely uh, been murdered. So there's a lot. There's no doubt that Ellen and Josephine were a set of Dr. Joseph Mengele's secret twins. You mentioned uh, we, we mentioned Larson. Apparently, he was, um, uh, as you say, knocked off, and he was intending on exposing this underground Nazi and Illuminati activity uh, in Sweden. Yeah, he he died of a what was it a suspicious uh, heart attack? Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. Okay, so so you're saying that this is where the Nordegren uh, Nordegrens came from. So how did they get them over to the United States? They were working as um, as nannies for for uh, one of the, the the Swedish golfers, weren't they? Right, right. They they uh, basically what they did is they uh, <laughs> they moved them into circles that would come into contact with with uh, with Tiger Woods. And arranged that uh, that uh, that they'd be able to be brought into those circles so that they could introduce them. It's when you think about it, it's it's just like the movies that we've seen. It's very similar to uh, to uh, remember I Spy, the TV show with Robert Culp Culp and Bill Cosby, Cosby, right? And how they used the fact that they were tennis players as a cover, right? Right. Uh, I think that that uh, we had an operation here where. Where Tiger Woods was was an experiment being used as a, as like an I spy sort of a character, passing on information. His mind control programming from inf- infancy is deeply ingrained in Nazism. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Come back and continue to talk about the uh, Nordgren twins and Tiger Woods, a Manchurian candidate. Nelson Thal says so. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Nelson Thal, media scientist, and of course his podcast is Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. All right, uh, back to uh, the Nordegren, uh, Nordegren twins. And they, they were brought over to the United States, uh, part of the au pair program. They worked as nannies. And uh, for one of the Swedish uh, uh, Swedish golfers, Jesper Parnevek, right? Sure the okay, Jesper Parnevek. Yeah. So that got, but he was their sponsor, which is interesting because he's a Swedish national, and according to the au pair program, as you point out, this is one of the inconsistencies. They should not have been allowed to come over right. in part of, as part of the au pair program because the sponsor has to be a U.S. national, and uh, Jasper. Uh, Parnevek was not. However, so they got them into the country, and as you also point out in your research, the um, their mother was uh, was uh, high up in the Swedish government, and uh, she was part of the uh, the immigration ministry or something like that. So right. she she would then presumably be able to pull some strings. So they get the Nordegren twins into the United States. They get them into the golf circles, and Tiger becomes smitten with uh, with uh, Ellen. And who can blame him? Who wouldn't? Now. Let me go back to Tiger Woods here for a yeah. moment. As a as a, a product of, of this uh, this brainwashing, essentially a Manchurian candidate. Yeah, he would then have to have 
uh, handlers and so forth, and, and his behaviors could be controlled with certain trigger words, if I'm remembering the Manchurian Candidate uh, movie correctly. Yes. So, I mean, what other things were they getting him to do? I mean, he had this dark side that we that only recently came to light after his sort of public or fall from 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 grace. Yeah. First of all, his his what they do is this, Richard. They artificially split the mind and partition it, just like we do computers, and um, complete with its own secret themes and triggers and codes and access words. So he's his mind has been programmed, and he becomes now multiple personalities. And we know from people who have been deprogrammed out of these, like Arizona Wilder, Duncan Cameron, and others, um, what happens is they use drugs and sex as ways of brainwashing and programming the mind. So it's you. They take you to great levels of of either pain or pleasure as a way of starting to uh, separate and segregate the mind and creating multiple personalities. So actually there's a part of him that doesn't, a lot of him doesn't, doesn't know what he's really being used for. It's very much like the um, this is the what Alistair, born identity. Alistair Crowley called sex magic. Sex magic, exactly. And but sex magic is all based on using sensations and the flood of sensations uh, in order to in order to split the mind and start to segregate the mind into partitions. So then we need to figure out then, Nelson. You need to explain why Ellen. Nordegren was sent over to marry Tiger Woods. What was yeah, the purpose I th- here? I think here, now that we've been able to ascertain and put together the strong connections on both these two people from the different mind control intelligence operations, we don't have all the answers, Rich. We don't necessarily know everything as to why this was done. But it appears that she was sent out to... Uh, find out, get into his mind, and discover how the programming was done and what secrets he may have been used to pass. Remember, because once you partition these people's minds, they can then go around the world like I spy tennis players. He goes around the world as a golf player, but when he meets certain people, the triggers, certain trigger words cause him to give out information yeah, like, hi, Tiger, how about uh, passing the time with a little solitaire? Whatever it is, he then flips his mind into another partition and he gives up secrets to another spy and passes on information about operatives or whatever. Ah, in other op- words, he's like a he's like a mule and he's, instead of carrying drugs, he's carrying information. Uh, codes and codes, secrets, state secrets, secrets yep. uh, that are buried deeply within one of those compartmental compartmentalized mind exactly because his psyche has been fractured through this Nazi style interrogation technique and brainwashing uh, and and only certain people know certain the certain trigger words that can with extract this information yeah. okay so he's, he's a, a golfer but he's also a uh, spy he, he's also a Jason Bourne interesting I interesting. mean it's not when we want when we look into these things we start to find that there are messages in the in in the different media there's certain television programs there's certain films that are telling us and giving us examples about what's really going on so if if Tiger Woods was to snap out of his his brainwashing 
he'd be like Jason Bourne, who's now the movie, if you've seen it. He's going right. around around the world trying to find out who he is and what he did. And he was programmed. They partitioned his mind, programmed him to be an assassin, as you recall. He woke up, had a bolt in his back, was on a boat in a trawler, and was trying to find out what he did and learned that he was an assassin. You know, that's interesting you say that because if we, if we go back to – his uh, a public statement, his heavily prepared public statement, where he's apologizing for all his sexual uh, escapades and so forth. And everyone was very critical of the fact that he did not seem to be very sincere uh, or contrite. Now it makes sense. If what you're saying is true, it's hard to be contrite, genuinely sorry for doing something if you have actually no memory of it. Right. Right, and he may not have any memory of a lot of the things he was doing. And if you remember the Nike commercial, uh, they at, the way they asked him the question got the answer. Asked the question, it was almost as if the Nike commercial was of uh, an extension of his mind control, uh, mind control programming. And what I don't understand though is that if uh, Ellen and Josephine Nordegren are essentially sent in to take over uh, Ellen becomes his wife then she becomes his his handler she has I, certain trigger words I don't words think she becomes her handler his handler no. no she she is now her job is to find out what is his programming and break into the various partitions of his mind but i don't understand if uh, aren't her bosses basically the same as tiger's bosses why are they competing well on a certain level they're they're competing Different different sides of the Atlantic are are competing here, uh, but but aren't these these intelligence uh, groups and so forth ultimately con controlled by the same people? Well, I mean, at the top of the pyramid, at the very top of the pyramid, that's true. But uh, we still have uh, these in these independent intelligence agencies, each uh, ex uh, experimenting on its own group. And uh, I mean, it's still a spy versus spy world, even though we say that ONI, FBI, CIA, as, as Hitchcock said in North by Northwest, it's all the same alphabet soup. They still play this spy versus spy game. In other words, ultimately, the KGB and the, the, the MI6 and the CIA, they may ultimately be controlled by the same group, but at their own level, they don't know that they're all controlled by the exactly. same group. So they're still engaging in these little b battles. Well, that's right, because uh, uh, we, we still have iron sharpens iron. So uh, it's best at the top to create different intelligence agencies and have them warring against each other. That way you'll find – you'll get the best technology coming out. You'll sharpen your, your site's competition from their standpoint. They like to have competition between their subsidiaries as a way of heightening and increasing in, in, – advancing their technological prowess. Nelson Thal is here, media scientist. We're discussing – Tiger Woods, the greatest athlete perhaps the world has ever known, as a product of the Phoenix Project, which was an off an offshoot of uh, MK Ultra. So what we're saying is, or what Nelson is saying is, Tiger Woods is essentially a Manchurian candidate with an artificially split mind, an artificially partitioned split mind. for excellence, a super cyber athlete. Right, and so therefore, uh, and part of this programming included 
sex, so he has no memory of a lot of these sexual escapades. So again, Ellen is, is sent over here uh, to uh, to try and find out what the uh, what the code words are, so the, the trigger words, so that she can break into his his mind and extract uh, secrets and find out what secrets he's trading with uh, with uh, other intelligence groups. So then, why? The, uh, the the fall from grace, uh, the uh, the sexual uh, escapades uh, come to public light through the National Enquirer. Uh, why was why was that done? Well, uh, uh, once again, Richard. I mean, I think that that there's we're extrapolating. So we have the beginning and we have the end, and in all cases, we don't. We have to fill in. Uh, we have to fill in between the lines and fill in the dots. Um, we know she came out of Sweden from one part of a, one part of the MK Ultra uh, Phoenix program. They're mingly, definitely uh, mingly women. The boys from Brazil, the girls from Sweden. Uh, uh, Tiger's part of another uh, operative program of building high-level spies who are able to. Um, carry information without being consciously aware of it. So should they be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of their existence. And it would appear that they're trying to break into his mind, having brought broken into his mind and discovered what exactly information got a mind dump as to what intelligence he was hand carrying. They no longer needed him and now uh, divorced him and tossed him away. So then in uh, in November of last year, uh, David Pecker, the owner of the National Enquirer and American yes. Media, yep. he uh, breaks the story that Tiger is having an affair with uh, uh, with this woman, uh, Rachel, um, is it Ucatel? Ucatel, yes. Ucatel? Yeah. So what was that all about? Well, I, I guess the, we could, we can only speculate as to at the point time now, what now that he was a, he had been broken into um he probably had lost his ability to he was now a spy that was no longer useful to them he had lost his usefulness he had lost his his prize because because alan had had broken the code and uh and um and essentially shown that the aryan race men are more uh superior to the uh the non-aryan race men in their From, twisted, in, in their, their twisted, in, in their, their twisted minds, minds. exactly. Right. In their twisted minds, so exactly. so Tiger was no longer useful as a as a as a spy, right? Uh, and it was time to what uh, get uh, to get uh, Ellen extricated from the situation and so they decided to bring the marriage to provide a pretext for the dissolution of the marriage well I, I don't think I don't think the the Woodside wanted the, the wanted him to be that her to, I don't think they wanted her to break into his mind and to find the secrets but having once done it there was the alarms went off and it was the Ellen that left the marriage right it was her who left the marriage so they she had gotten the marriage was a marriage of convenience the marriage was just there in order to allow her to have access to him in private having been able to, if she hadn't been able to break into his mind still they still may be married so so who orders david pecker then of the national enquirer to uh to provide the pretext for the dissolution of the marriage by breaking the story of uh, Tiger's extramarital affairs. Yeah, that's the real question. We don't know who, but obviously, uh, this was the way of uh, the public explanation 
of why. They had to give a public explanation. They couldn't explain that, well, she left the marriage because she got all the information from him that they wanted because that's 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 – that's the secret. The secret is who he is. Okay, so, so they had to manufacture some reason that made sense to the public as to why they were now splitting up, and they used the sexual as the uh, as the way of doing it. So, so Pecker may have been working in concert with the Nordegrens, uh, or the Nordegrens' New World Order overlords. We don't we don't know. And they set or, the stage again for Aline's public getaway. Um, so let's t- take us back then to. November of uh, 2009, and uh, of course, this was this is one of those. Well, this is one of those connections m- now. Moments in in history we all remember, like the OJ uh, getaway in the white Bronco, and this is uh, well, this is nine eleven. A tiger, <laughs> a tiger uh, <laughs> lying unconscious uh, in front of his um, SUV, uh, having crashed the uh, crashed his vehicle into a neighbor's tree. And uh, so what was that all about? Uh, first of all, it's important to note, as you've noted, that November 9th is Kristallnacht, a big event in Nazi history, which, of course, Richard, we could do another show on, is 9-11. Right, right. Right? 9-11 is, the, is November 9th. 9-11 is November the 9th. Okay, gotcha. Right. Now, uh, okay, let's get back to your, your to, to your uh, your question about uh, about uh, yeah, a tiger lying lying unconscious uh, beside his SUV that he just crashed into a neighbor's tree, and uh, Aline has busted out the uh, the windows of the SUV with a golf club. Yeah, uh, well, uh, undoubtedly, we're told that they had gotten all the information that was needed and planned to push his mind all the way to the edge, and to stage her getaway, and uh, she had. Uh, the speculation is this was the interesting thing. Uh, the Florida Highway Patrol uh, had uh, had not uh, uh, taken any tests for any, any for drugs. Drugs. Okay, so they didn't yeah. test for drugs. You're 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 suspecting that, that- Elaine tri- drugged Tiger with truth drugs and pushed him psychologically until he reached his program deep layer self destruct cover. So she wanted him to, to kill himself? She wanted – or to wipe his memory of the fact that he – that she didn't want to destroy his cover. She wanted to try and keep him as uh, an operative and turn him for her use rather than his his father's use. Okay, so she, she employed the same sort of interrogation techniques using uh, drugs uh, uh, in order to turn him into a double agent. It's wiped and try to wipe his mind clean, but I guess she what he, he started try, to, to try and to try and wipe his mind clean of the fact that he that she had broken into and found out the secret information that she wanted to get from him. Okay, that he was as a a, a courier was taking around the world. Okay, so and the cover story was that she was so enraged at discovering his extramarital affairs <laughs> that she went at him with a golf club and he tried to flee and crashed into the neighbor's tree. You're saying had they bothered to test his blood, they would have found truth serum in there. Yeah, exactly. And other and other powerful drugs. But I think what what was happening at that time in his relationship with her, these two spies, is she had broken into his his mind the partition 
that had the secret information and taken it out. And now what she was trying to do was to turn him so that he would now become her Manchurian candidate rather than the other side's Manchurian candidate. Right. And uh, and to do that, they would have to make sure that he would not expose the fact that he had dumped this information to her, that he had, that he had that the partition that supposedly in his mind was was locked tight that they he wanted would want to cover up the fact that they had broken into that partition nelson thal is with his media scientist discussing the creation of tiger woods a manchurian candidate and the twins uh, the nordigan twins ellen aline and uh, josephine uh, were essentially uh, a spy sent over to try and crack uh, the codes, find out what the trigger words were to get into Tiger's mind and find out which state secrets he was uh, carrying around. And uh, uh, so the, the the other interesting inconsistencies with the story uh, that you've pointed out, the official version, is it's interesting that um, uh, Aline's uh, father uh, and sister were both in Florida at the time, conveniently. And uh, you're, you're asserting that they were there to sort of to help spin this this story yeah the other thing is that uh, shortly after this uh this breakup aline and josephine supposedly went to some island off the coast of sweden and bought this house right uh but according to reports from the realtor or something they had bought that place like months in advance so as if to say that they were hatching this plan yeah they were they had they they're they're they had planned to actually uh we don't know what the plan was once again. We, it may have been that um, having turned him over to their side, they would have brought him back there. We, you know, Richard, in a lot of these, as we research into it and look into it, um, you can't necessarily tell the motives. But one thing's for sure, it's odd that she should be purchasing this property while at the same time the world is told that she has a happy marriage. All right, back with more of Nelson Thal and Tiger Woods, the Manchurian candidate, when The Conspiracy Show continues after this. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Nelson, the other interesting thing uh, is that you point out with uh, the divorce is that the lawyer that handled the, uh, the, the separation, the legal separation, uh, worked for this very powerful law firm, McGuire Woods, uh, where Josephine, Aline's sister, worked, and that the, um, the lawyer in question, uh, was it Walter White? Yes. Walter Whiteley or Walter White? Not Walter White Jr. Walter White Jr. Yeah. He's he's um, he's this international, global, financial, banking, corporate wizard. He's not even a divorce lawyer. So that's an interesting choice. Why? Why do they choose him as the divorce lawyer? <laughs> yeah, let's just say who he is. White's a member of good, in good standing of David Rockefeller's Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And he's also a member of Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. These are two of the top-level spy organizations of the Rockefellers. So once again, the lawyer who she uses is not a divorce lawyer, but uh, a major uh, lawyer of the ruling elite at the very top, the very top. Uh, 
I think that uh, in looking at these stories, it's important to understand this whole new branch of technology of mind control that the average public is not told about and the ability to turn the mind into a computer-like mechanism with partitions so that people can carry information as couriers in their head, yet the danger of sending someone out is that if they're caught and kidnapped by the other side, they can, they want that information protected or they want it so that at the proper code word that all the information that that operative has is just dumped. Or in extreme examples, uh, as in the Manchurian candidate and the, and the actor Lawrence Harvey, yeah. uh, they, they may have some incredible uh, ability, uh, a super marksman or, a, or, or uh, yeah. you know, they could be a, a trained yeah. killer. Uh, yeah. it, it, one of those multiple personalities could be a trained killer, and yet that person in their normal state would have no memory uh, of that activity. Exactly. So um, uh, I guess the old – there's a lot more going on here. The story will start to develop – will develop and we'll get more information. But there's a lot more going on here than just some pretty blonde Swedish model marrying a wonderful uh, black athlete golfer. I mean when you scratch the surface, you start to see the involvement of the intelligence agencies, the MK Ultra, the mind control on both sides, a spy versus spy where operatives versus operatives are uh, uh, fighting a, a spy versus spy war, which – is nothing new when you take a look at what's going on around the world. And uh, I, I need to point out, these are all uh, allegations. I mean, the, the research is very interesting, and you've connected some interesting dots, but they are just that. They're, 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 it's speculation, it's supposition, it's extrapolation. And connections. And connections, but allegations, um, uh, very serious allegations. Well, as Condon's Law says, when you don't know the whole truth, your worst fears are bound to be close. And when you start to see the connections between, as you say, what's the connection between Elaine, Elaine Nordgren and Walter White, who's a top Rockefeller lawyer? Why would he be brought in for a marriage dispute, especially since he has no expertise in marriage? But he's an expert in uh, – he's, he's a member of the CFR and the, and the Chatham House. Well, who are some of the other uh, suspected Manchurian candidates that are high profile that are walking around out there? Well, of course, we know that uh, uh, Schwarzenegger is de definitely a Mengele man. The governor of California yeah. is a, uh, a super soldier, a, a creation of the the guy Reinhard Galen, Reinhard Galen, and and he's close with Helene von Dam, and Helene van Dam was America's ambassador to Austria, and she was very very. Uh, and she worked as a secretary in the Nazi high command. So a woman, Helene von Dam, who worked in the Nazi high command, who then went to America, got out through the Vatican rat line, was connected with Reagan, was in Reagan's cabinet. Uh, she's also meets – she meets regularly with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, of course, his father is a notorious member of the Nazi uh, – He's a brown shirt. Storm, yeah, yeah, brown shirt. Yes. Stormtroopers. So you're suggesting then that uh, Schwarzenegger's father, like Tiger Woods' father, uh, um, I mean the, the stories are that when Hitler rolled through uh, Vienna, Hitler's um, uh, Schwarzenegger's mother swooned, you know, and uh, I guess um, uh, took yeah. Hitler's 
challenge, you know, for, 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 for women to go out and, and produce pure Aryan super children. She took that to heart. Yeah. And, uh, she joined, she joined Hitler's, uh, sorry, Himmler's Lebensborn call for a thousand year Reich and, uh, to join. And these people then join into the Lebensborn Hitler, uh, Himmler's program and become the mothers and fathers of the, the, the clone children. And Schwarzenegger's, in effect, was a cloned child. His mother and father was basically a test tube. Well, that, that, that was the other uh, uh, rumor that uh, that Arnold Schwarzenegger's father uh, and Arnold didn't get along because uh, was it Gustav? Gustav, Gustav never thought that Arnold was his own son. That's right. That's right. And I'm sure so he, he was a test tube baby. Test tube baby. Back in the in the forties, they had achieved this. Well, I think they. I think uh, between forty five, he started in China Lake, California. Mengele did. Yeah. Mengele. So in forty five, right through to, right through to when he passed away, he died in eighty six. But nineteen eighty six. But certainly in forty five and through the forty five, fifty five, sixty five years, those years, he was heavily breeding, uh, breeding these children. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is a is a Manchurian candidate. I mean, anyone who's seen you know many of his movies would uh, assume that he's been sort of sleepwalking <laughs> through those roles. But uh, all kidding aside, you're saying that he is controlled, yeah, uh, uh, and being manipulated. Manchurian candidate. He's a Manchurian candidate. Yeah, the, he's a Manchurian candidate that was uh, bred, put into uh, the the bodybuilding program, brought into the United States. Schwarzenegger was moved into. Uh, America as a Manchurian candidate, he's become he's been the governor of California, so he's passed that test. He's going to be on the sidelines. They'll move him up to the next level when they want him to, probably the presidency, which which would take a, a constitutional amendment because he's not a natural born U.S. citizen. But hey, maybe they've been testing the waters uh, with uh, with Barack Obama. Well, we all- Many contest is not a natural born U.S. citizen. Exactly. Uh, we've been saying for quite some time that it just may be that uh, the whole Obama project was done as a way of setting the scene so that they could bring Schwarzenegger in as the president of the United States. Remember in the movie The Boys from Brazil or the movie The Omen, the whole purpose was to get one of those boys from Brazil into the White House. Right, right. And of course, what family, the family that was connected with the Bush family and backed uh, with Brown Harriman Bank, partners with Brown Harriman Bank. This is all de- this is all this is a speculation. This is all matter of fact. With the Kennedy family, and Schwarzenegger is married to the Ken- Kennedy. Right, right. So all the connections are there. It's fascinating, fascinating. Nelson Thal, uh, media scientist, and uh, tell us about the podcast. Uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and uh, Steele. Yeah, well, uh, we do. Uh, uh, Mrs. Steele and I do a regular uh, every other week show at uh, thatchannel.com, which you can, which are archived at uh, uh, bloomandsteel.com, and uh, we have uh, all sorts of photos. And I have an article this uh, this story about uh, uh, Nordgren and Tiger Woods. Uh, you can uh, read at bloomandsteel.com in the article section. Nelson, thanks for bringing it uh, to our attention. It's my pleasure, Richard. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to uh, talk about these things and uh, and uh, expose what's really happening backstage in the global theater that the mass media uh, are not uh, are not wanting to touch and cover. All right.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ain't like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Chip Haynes is an environmentalist and the author of a brand new book entitled Peak of the Devil, 100 Questions About Peak Oil. Hey Chip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. Let's talk conspiracy and oil. Indeed. Well, first of all, let me uh, let me ask you. Let's get a, a definition. When you say peak oil, I'm, I'm assuming you don't necessarily mean that point when all of the world's oil reserves run absolutely dry. Simply when we need, we, we we arrive at a point when it's when it's no longer viable to extract the oil. It's the peak is literally the halfway point of production. Um, about 50, 60 years ago, oil companies found that oil wells are going to produce a finite amount of, of oil, each one. And at the midpoint of their overall production, that's when they produce the most oil, whether you're counting per day, per week, per month, per year. The midpoint of production is the peak volume point as well. So when you say you're going to reach peak oil, this is the highest production point you're going to reach at the middle of the overall total volume. And after that, no matter what you do, it's kind of all downhill from there. Where are we now in terms of uh, the the uh, the clock? I suppose if if uh, that that is one of the big the big questions. You can't you can't see peak oil as it happens. You can only see it as Colin Campbell says in the rearview mirror. Only years later do you go, hey, back then that was our peak. Darn. Right now, oil analysts are looking at the years 2005 and 2006 as the peak of conventional oil production. Will we top it maybe in 2011, 2012? That's certainly possible, but every year that passes that we don't top what we did back then, it looks more and more likely that that was it. Let me ask you about a theory I, I know you're familiar with, and that is uh, <clears throat> abiotic oil. And this is... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's another big deal. There's a lot of people are really, really depending on abiotic or abiotic oil, which is oil not from an organic source. All of the oil that we have extracted 
extracted from the earth so far has been organic in nature. And there are people pointing to uh, scientific claims, space claims, that there is methane on different planets or methane around different moons. And they're saying, look, this proves that you can get, that oil can exist that is not of an organic nature. To the best of my knowledge, reading what I can find, nobody has yet stood in front of a TV camera and held up a jar of abiotic oil. It's a theory that if we went, if we drilled deeper into the earth, we would tap a massive quantity of abiotic oil. I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I haven't seen anybody do it yet. Uh, it's a popular dream. And I wish it were true, but I'm not going to really depend on it. So if they're finding uh, hydrocarbons on Titan, right. one of Saturn's moons, and, and, and elsewhere, doesn't that then at least suggest uh, that oil might be, may not be primordial, uh, this primordial syrup, but that, that's... Uh, I don't know... Uh... I don't know how old you are, Richard. I'm, I'm going to be 60 here in a couple months, and I remember way back when Chevron did a wonderful set of cute commercials. They were cartoons. They were animated. And it was about dinosaurs and how dinosaurs gave their all to make oil. Not necessarily true. From what we're seeing, from the analysis we're seeing of oil, one of the main conclusions, one of those popular conclusions is oil is a combination of vegetable matter and marine life uh, matter that was pressed and heated for 65 million years in what was once, uh, say, a shallow bay or a lake or uh, very large tidal flats and swamps that accumulated a massive concentration of organic matter on the bottom of this water body. And then that, over time, the water body dries up, it gets pushed further underground, uh, layers of earth go over top of it, it gets trapped and pressure cooked. And that is the consensus of where oil comes from that we are pumping now. I always joke. Somebody says, well, how's oil made? Well, when a, when a mommy oil and a daddy oil love each other very much, <laughs> uh, it's all about pressure cooking uh, hydrocarbons at the right temperature at the right depth in the earth to achieve that pressure and that temperature. If it's much deeper than that, you get more natural gas. If it's much higher than that, you get coal and peat. Uh, there has to be a layer of impermeable rock on both sides of this to keep it from going anywhere. It's, it's a very picky, I guess you could say, uh, scenario. Everything has to fall into place perfectly for there to end up being this reservoir of oil. And it's not we talk about reservoirs of oil. It's not like this huge underground cavern uh, sloshing with oil. It is a uh, permeable rock structure. It's like a rock sponge that is just riddled with holes that this oil is suspended in. And that's what we're drilling into to, to extract oil. Everybody talks about oil production, and even I say oil production. And we're not producing it. We're not making it. We're finding it and extracting it from the earth. That's what makes it awkward when you're on low. Chip, Chip Haynes is uh, with us, and uh, we're discussing uh, peak oil, and uh, his new book is 
Peak of the Devil, 100 Questions About Peak Oil. Uh, Chip, one of the things that the the, uh, abiotic oil um, theorists talk about is this Eugene um, Island, 330 in the Gulf, which is a submerged um, mountain, I guess, in the Gulf of Mexico. And and apparently it was uh, churning out about 15,000 barrels a day in the late 70s. And then all of a sudden, in about 1989, the oil production there crashed to about 4,000 barrels a day. And then all of a sudden, they say, that uh, production went back up to about 13,000 barrels a day. And they've readjusted the... Uh, the estimates of the reserves there from something like uh, forty to six hundred million barrels. Uh, they're they're theorizing that then that if if oil is abiotic and it is virtually inexhaustible, that these these oil wells would actually start to fill up once we've started to extract some of the oil. It gets down to a certain level, and then the oil rises up from you know deep within the Earth's core. What do you say about the the, uh, the mystery, if you will, of Eugene Island? Again, I've not heard any oil company say, oh gosh, we've got abiotic oil. No worries, go driving. Um, oil production does vary wildly from field to field, well to well, and you get those those peaks and drops, and that's what makes, it goes back to peak oil. It makes peak oil very difficult to say, oh yes, that was it, because there's a chance, there's this, always a slim chance that, that the well you have drilled will somehow tap into more oil than you first thought. So, it's, it's tough. I would not want to expect that to happen on a regular basis with every well. Um, that's a dangerous pipe dream, no pun intended. Uh, I don't know, and, and let's, take it, let's take it as fact then. Let's say yes, there is abiotic oil. There's a massive, massive amount of it deeper in the earth. How do you, I don't know. Do I really want to drill that deep? Do I really want to extract that much substance that's literally holding me up on the surface? That's interesting. Well, let's talk about uh, perhaps the... That could, be, that could be interesting. Indeed. And, and, and there's been some speculation that uh, the actual act of drilling for oil, deep uh, deep drilling and so forth, may how uh, may somehow be related to uh, earthquakes and, and, and so forth. We can... Well, I, I can't really buy into that, and I'll tell you why. If you look at Midland, Texas, which is east, no, excuse me, west Texas, and you look at the Gwar field in Saudi Arabia, these are the two most heavily drilled regions on planet Earth, and they are not known for their earthquakes, even though they've been extracting oil from beneath it for decades. Now, here where I live in, uh, in west central Florida, what we find is if we extract too much water, groundwater, subterranean water, we get sinkholes. So we don't get earthquakes, but we get sinkholes. I I don't know as extracting too much oil would cause earthquakes per se, but I would worry about, I still would worry about the structure of the earth uh, above it, the uh, the stability of everything. Because again, you've got the oil suspended in a porous rock even though the oil itself does not support weight, it does support the structure. It, it does somehow reinforce the structure with its existence and pressure. So, there's always, there's always another factor to consider. Um, 
I don't believe that will stop anybody from drilling. I believe that uh, after we pass peak oil and it gets more difficult to find oil and to extract it, that people will go to great lengths to extract the oil from wherever they can, whether we're talking Texas, the Gulf of Mexico, the Arctic Ocean is the new hot spot uh, for oil. Um, I do believe that we are going to try as hard as we possibly can to keep up the level of commitment, the level of usage, of involvement with oil for as long as we can because well, we're kind of addicted to this stuff and we're used to it and it sure is nice to have around. All right, Chip, stay with us. Uh, back with more of our conversation on peak oil here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Chip Haynes is uh, with us, and we're discussing, as I said, uh, peak oil. And uh, the new book is Peak of the Devil, 100 Questions and answers about peak oil. I think I know the answer to this one, Chip. But where do you uh, where do you stand on the issue of uh, offshore drilling and perhaps uh, you know uh, either a moratorium on that or or perhaps uh, expanding the, uh, offshore oil uh, drilling? Oh, I you know being the author and all, I still have absolutely no power over the oil companies. I know that. That comes as a shock to you. Um, so my position didn't get a much matter. Uh, I live in Clearwater, Florida, and Clearwater Beach, which is about two and a half miles west of where I live, is one of the most beautiful white sugar sand beaches uh, in the world. Our, our beaches here around here are some of the finest you'll ever see, and I would certainly hate to have them fouled with oil. That would run a much larger tourism industry in this state. Uh, even the Deepwater Horizon, we took a huge hit because people didn't understand that, no, it was 300 miles away. That didn't affect us. Um, I would rather see a push for conservation. I would rather see a push for using less oil, more, better mass transit, uh, microgeneration for homes and businesses. I would rather see ways to not need that much oil. But again, what I say doesn't matter. Uh, I think you're going to find over time that, yes, you're going to see more drilling in places that are environmentally sensitive, whether we're talking the Gulf of Mexico, the tundra, the Arctic tundra, uh, every place, right? Downtown Toronto, if they find oil under it, uh, it's, it's going to get to the point where, where the oil companies are going to want to go and drill wherever they can to maintain, to, to feed our appetite for oil. And uh, you're going to see laws change. You're going to see public opinion changed. People are going to be a, lo a little less, uh, I, I suspect, a little less environmentally conscious once they realize they've got a choice. They, they either drill in this forest or they don't drive. And it's a nasty addiction. They don't drive or they can't heat their home. Uh, they they can't drive, or or perhaps even worse, they can't heat their home. Well, see, that, yeah, that puts us between the rock and the hard place. Again, down here in oil, we're about oil in Florida. We're a tourism-based industry, and if the tourists can't get here, oh, we don't have an industry. So, you know, we really we really need the oil production maintained and maintained at a level that makes it affordable to vacation or winter in Florida, because we do depend on it. This is part of our 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 income, uh, 
do. So it's tough. It's, it's a no-win situation all around. We're going to have to keep drilling. But again, it's getting harder and harder to find oil. Certainly, we're not finding the big reserves, the big, the big finds that they found 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, we're not finding the, the galar out of Saudi Arabia, the Cantarelli in Mexico, or the, or the area around Midland, Texas. is just amazingly, was amazingly productive for so long. So they're going to keep drilling wherever they can. I joke that they're going to drill through your grandmother's grave if there's a bucket of oil under it. Well, it uh, it's going to get to the point that it gets frantic, that it gets um, dangerously frantic. Well, when it's no longer vi- viable to extract oil or it's going to cost us uh, $15, $20 a gallon at the pumps, in which case it's no longer economically viable to, to, to operate our cars, what do we do then, Chip? I mean, is it too late at that point? Uh, it's probably too late right now. So we're, we're at the mercy of whatever happens next. Uh, we haven't scaled back our use of oil at all. Here in the United States, mass transit is, you know, three nuns in a station wagon. So it's really tough to, to say, oh, we've got a switch. It's too late. We need, we do not have viable passenger rail service in America. Very rare, very select routes. Um, I live in a county with one million people, and there is no passenger train service in this county. If I wanted to ride a train, I would have to drive 25 miles east to the other side of Tampa, the other side of downtown Tampa, before I could pick up a train to go anywhere. So we have no mass transit. Um, we have no plan B when it comes to replacing oil in any quantity with anything else. Um, it's late. It's already too late. I don't think... Uh, I don't think we're going to have an easy transition. I'd say I don't think we're going to have much warning, but we've really had about 50 years worth of warning already, and nobody's been listening. So, run all around. Yeah, I, th- I think I think Jimmy Carter really uh, tried to hammer that message home. Unfortunately, he wasn't uh, a very popular president. But thirty years ago, uh, he w- thirty-five years ago, really, he was uh, at, you know the last energy crisis, so-called. He was trying to get any everyone's attention, and 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 was actually, from what I understand, pretty effective in his short four years uh, reducing U.S. He is the uh, one man, the one president I have met, by the way, which is really cool. Um, he put solar cells on the White House roof, and he, yes, he really tried. He honestly, the man, tried. His heart was in the right place. His brain was in the right place. He was just oh, 30, 40 years too soon. Because I understand that one of the first things Reagan did when he took the White House was got the solar cells off the roof. Uh, big shock there. Yeah, Carter, Carter was absolutely right, but it just wasn't... The situation wasn't as obvious to the general public. It still isn't. I can still look outside here and I can see cars zipping by, trucks zipping by, there are airplanes overhead, there are are boats in the harbor. Uh, We're still, the United States is still burning through 20 million barrels of oil a day. There's no, no big wholesale mass attempt to conserve anything. Even if we find a substitute fuel, whether it's uh, hydrogen or whether it's uh, uh, ethanol, uh, that does nothing to address the the uh, the oil dependency for agriculture or even the pharmaceutical industry. Oil is very important uh, to the production of food and and uh, and uh, obviously medicine. Yes, absolutely. But you know, the 
average person only sees it as gasoline in the car. But you, you mentioned hydrogen and uh, ethanol. Hydrogen, we have to refine from other product, either natural gas, water, whatever. There has to be a conversion process there because we don't actually mine or pump or gather pure hydrogen. So that's very energy intensive right there. We tend to use more energy to refine the hydrogen than the energy in the hydrogen we end up with. It's, it's like paying six fifty for a $5 bill. It's a little awkward in the long run. Uh, ethanol gives us the choice of eat or drive. Those are bad choices. Uh, ethanol is, is, is crop. It's, you're taking farmland away from food just to drive around, and that's probably a bad idea. I do, however, find the absolute humorous, funny side of ethanol is ethanol is basically moonshine. It's alcohol, and there have been people selling home ethanol kits. You can buy a home ethanol production facility, a micro factory, a micro refinery, and put it in your garage, and you can generate uh, by providing your own feedstock to this thing. You can you can make your own ethanol. Basically, it's a moonshine still. This has got to be driving the federal government absolutely crazy. Because you get these people selling ethanol refineries. It's, it's a still. Now everybody in their sock monkey can have one in their garage. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> what about uh, producing ethanol from algae? Ah, yeah, I've heard a lot about that. It, it comes down to scale. The two issues, the two issues with any alternative energy source are one thing called E-R-O-E-I, which stands for Energy Recovered Over Energy Invested. And that means you've got to spend less energy acquiring this thing than what you ended up with. I need, if I want to bring a thousand BTUs of energy to market, I've got to be able to find it, pump it, refine it, ship it, and deliver it to the customer using less BTUs than the BTUs I just sold. Kind of like the money. You know, I've got to be able to do it for less money than what I'm selling it for. Otherwise, there's no profit in energy. There's no profit in money. The other issue is one of scale. That is, the United States is using 20 million barrels of oil a day. So if you've got an alternative, what's it going to take to ramp up production, for instance, with algae-based uh, ethanol, whatever, how much are we going to need to produce 20 million barrel equivalent every day? And man, it's huge. It's just amazing. Nothing does what oil does. Nothing does it as well. Nothing is as diversified as oil. We've learned to do a lot of cool things with oil. All our plastics are oil. Well, the other issue is, uh, let's say we find an alternative, we still have to then think about, uh, you know, retooling, uh, and to to get these plants up to speed and to get them, you know, retooled, we still need the oil to get that done. So, is there enough oil to get the retooling done so that we can actually, uh, uh, you know, transfer from 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 oil to whatever the alternative is? Right. Right. You have you have in what they call infrastructure issues. You know, right now you can go down to the gas station and you can get uh, regular gas. You can get premium gas. Uh, some stations are selling diesel fuel, but nobody's uh, offering you hydrogen. Uh, now here in the United States, uh, we often get 
gasoline mixed with about 10% ethanol, but not yet pure ethanol or 85% ethanol, which is what they've been talking about. There has to be an infrastructure in place to, to replace the oils, the oils infrastructure, the gas station. Uh, that's not there. I'm seeing uh, a lot of people want to talk about electric cars. Oh, electric cars are the answer. Not exactly. Electricity is kind of like hydrogen. We don't we don't mine it, we don't harvest it, we don't pump it, we have to create it. And we create the electricity using other forms of energy, like oil and natural gas. So now you're using one form of energy to make another form of energy to replace the form of energy you use to make it. Ew, that's, that can't be good, that can't be good. And again, uh, we're seeing we're seeing warnings now that if everybody And, and, uh, and electric cars really aren't the answer. They look really good, but they're not. Not yet, anyway. I mean, I don't know. Well, we we have a grid that is that is still fired by uh, or powered by uh, you know diesel powered generators. So, uh, what about? Uh, let me uh, take a time out. We'll come back and I'll ask you about uh, the nuclear option as well. Chip Haynes is with us as we talk about peak oil here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Chip, you mentioned uh, that uh, if everyone had an electrical ve- um, an electric vehicle in their garage, and they've got to, of course, uh, recharge the batteries every night, uh, they plug into the grid, and how are we going to power that grid? A lot of uh, generators are... Uh, are uh, uh, operating are operated by coal or diesel. What about nuclear? Ooh, the hot button topic. Um, a friend of mine once pointed out that he really liked the idea of nuclear power because, again, uranium is a finite natural resource, just like coal or oil. And he said, I think we should build a lot of nuke plants now and use the stuff up now and be done with it. So it's not an issue. And again, it goes back to, yes, uranium is a rare, thankfully rare, uh, finite mineral. It's not found everywhere. It's not found in huge quantities. It still has to be refined like oil has to be refined. Even as a transition energy source, it's difficult. It is very, as you know, very unfriendly to us in its its, uh, radioactive state. So... I don't know. I you get a lot of public response against nuclear power in Europe. It's a little more common, uh, but for here, I don't know if we could honestly build and fuel enough power plants, nuclear power plants, in time to help take up the slack, to help make up the difference. No, you need about ten years. It's uh... be interesting. I I think everything it will help a little bit, but nothing will help a lot. So you're painting a pretty bleak picture. Let's explore that uh, that bleakness uh, uh, then. Uh, I mean, how? Draw, paint me a picture. How how bad is it going to get? What's it? What when 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 gas goes to fifteen, twenty, twenty five dollars a gallon? What's going to happen? Well, I'm not sure we're going to see it go that high before it becomes scarce. Um, I would say 
we probably might, won't see it much over $10 a gallon in a worst-case scenario because you're going to see a demand for conservation kick in at some point. But what you and I have not yet touched on is the grimmest aspect of this, and that is oil's role in agriculture. That is, the petrochemicals that help us uh, increase our per-acre crop yield for, for food. And in the last hundred years, we have seen oil kick in as as insecticides, as fertilizer, as fungicides, as herbicides. We have seen oil used to run irrigation pumps and certainly to run basic farm equipment itself, tractors and harvesters and trucks. And the result of this is in the last hundred years, the per acre crop yield has multiplied by a factor of five. Coincidentally, so has the Earth's population of humans by a factor of five. So you take that oil away, theoretically you're dropping your per acre crop yield, so now you're not going to be able to feed as many people as you did. Ooh, I think some of us are going to have to leave. Yes. <laughs> yes. Not to mention, you know, how, how is the, the, the food going to be transported to the grocery store for those of right. us who well, don't grow our own food? Mile salad. Yeah. Um, it's going to be tough. Now, you look where, where you live, uh, up in Toronto. How close are you to fresh food right now? Probably a little distance. Yeah. Up the... here, I'm, uh, I'm in West Central Florida. I'm about 30 miles, 25 miles from the nearest big agricultural uh, vegetable and fruit farms and cattle ranches and stuff like that. So, and there's, they're active year-round. They're active year-round down here. So we're still fairly close to a food supply compared to where you are. Things would have to be trucked a greater distance in the winter. The only thing we grow around here, Chip, are homes, houses. And they, it's it's distressing. You see the you know prime farmland up here. Uh, you know we don't have a lot of arable land, and it's only productive for about maybe four months out of the year, and uh, that tends to be the uh, the real estate that uh, that gets uh, bought up once farmers can no longer make a go of it, and uh, up go the houses. Well, it's going to be t- it's going to be tough all around. You got I imagine here where you are in Toronto, you've got the Central Core City. Surrounded by suburbs, surrounded by exurbs, uh, surrounded by satellite communities, and everybody is coming into the city for whatever reason. We have the same thing here. A good friend of mine uh, lives north of Tampa, works in St. Petersburg. Her drive is, I'm going to try to convert it to metric, about 65 kilometers one way every day. Uh, I don't know how she's going to do it. No, we're going to have to learn to live close. We're going to have to learn to supply ourselves from closer sources. We're not going to be able to rely on, uh, what does Walmart call it? Their warehouse on wheels, the constant movement of goods over great distances, the constant stream of container ships from China. We are not going to be able to rely on the, the global economy is going to become a, a footnote in a history book. The local economy is going to become very important. We are going to become very much more localized, very much more regional, and things that happen a thousand miles away just aren't going to matter. So we're we're going to get to know our neighborhood. Uh, I joke the downside is you may end up actually knowing your neighbors, uh, but it's it's going to be a transition over time. This is 
something that's not going to happen tomorrow morning at, at, at 10 a.m. Well, there, I mean, you pointed there, there's, there is some upside to this, uh, but uh, it, it's going to be a, a painful transition if it's sort of drawn out uh, in, in a time period that allows us to adopt. That's one thing that, that humans have demonstrated, an ability to, to, to deal with adversity. To uh, Certainly our, our ancestors did that. Uh, they managed without oil. Um, I mean, surely we'll, we'll find a way. Maybe, maybe we go back to, uh, the horse-drawn carriage and, and, uh, uh... I saw the other night on TV, Meet Me in St. Louis was on, a beautiful musical set. It was written in 1944. I actually looked this up after the movie. The movie was written in 1944, and the action takes place in St. Louis, Missouri, between, uh, late summer of 1903 and spring of 1904. And it showed a family living in about a three-story Victorian home. They're fairly well off, but the scene opens with them making ketchup. This is not something you went out and bought in 1903. You made it. And they didn't have a car. They didn't even have their own horse and carriage. They would have to contract. They would have to get a hold of somebody. Yes, bring bring a coach over, and we need to go downtown. Um, But things are going to be very different. I've always said that 100 years from now will look like 100 years ago. If we're lucky, we're going to see a return to very basic living. We're not going to... We're not going to be flying around all the time. We're not going to be uh, driving around all the time. We're going to look at what's close to home and what can I get to without having to use oil. It's not going to go away. It's just going to be annoyingly difficult. So we're going to see a a transition in our lifestyle using less energy, traveling considerably less than we do right now. I don't think it's all entirely a bad thing. I I know it's going to be very ugly and unpleasant, and and yes, people are going to die from this, but when we come out the other side, when we come out from the far side of this transition to a low-oil culture, I guess you could say, society, community, whatever, it's going to be not entirely unpleasant, I would think. Um, I joke, we're not going to forget everything we learned. We're not going to suddenly become stupid when it comes to, to medicine and health issues and knowledge and, and everything we've learned uh, with oil or despite oil. But it's going to be a different application on a day-to-day basis, and we're going to find our, our lives contracted, I guess you could say, our our sphere of influence, I call it our monkey sphere, the, the number of people we interact with, the distances we travel, are going to are going to slow down, they're going to tighten up. And that's not entirely not entirely bad. Well, cut down on the drive time. Indeed. What would your strategy uh, be uh, if if this is what's staring us in the face? Do you uh, learn to grow your own food and get out of Dodge and get yourself some acreage? Or would it be better to stay put and build a community around you so that you know a doctor, you know a butcher, you know a hunter, you know a, a, a mechanic? I hear a lot of people talking about how, well, I'm going to live in the hills. Yeah, you do that. Have a good time. Um... I, I hear a lot of people talk about how they're just going to get out of the city, go way out in the country, live their own life. No, 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 no. I would prefer to live with people. I'm in no condition to go out and chop wood. I really don't want to do that. Um, I like the idea of 
community. I like the idea of being surrounded by people, by my friends. I love my neighbors. They're wonderful people, and they put up with me. So I I, I have a cousin that, that lives down the street here. And again, we're in Florida. I keep on, we're in Florida. And he always talks about how he's going to go back to the hills of West Virginia. Uh, he is in no shape to chop wood and to hike and lace up his own boots, for that matter. So that ain't going to happen. Uh, that dog don't hunt, as they say. Um, I myself, I'm going to be 60 here in a couple months. I'm already sporting a pacemaker. No, I want to be fairly close to medical attention. Uh, I want to know that if I do something stupid, which I do from time to time, that, that medical response is there in a matter of seconds, not a matter of days. So... I would say if anybody, and I get this a lot, people want to move to someplace else. No, I say be among friends. Be where you are known. Be where people, where you know everybody. Because the last thing you want to do is be the stranger in town when things are bad. You want to be a part of your community. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. I don't recommend people move just for the sake of moving. I don't recommend that the city slicker move out into the country and the first thing he does is put an axe through his foot. That's not good. <laughs> However... And, and I can see that happening a lot. Um, one of the stories that's very popular among uh, oil people that study this is the, the young man who went off into Alaska and died. Uh, he, he lived in like a, a derelict bus in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if he froze to death or starved to death, but the result was the same either way. And they point to this, and here's this city kid who went out into the country to find himself. And it took other people to go find him, and it was too late. So I would say stay in town. Uh, if anything, if anything, I would say if you live in these suburbs or exurbs or satellite communities, move into the core of downtown. Be as close as you can to everything, because... All the supply lines are going to contract. The outer stores may not get service. The remote stores aren't going to be supplied anymore. You're going to find those are the first to fail. And you're going to want to be close to the source of everything, where everything can be delivered efficiently in a close radius. That's where you want to be. But when the the uh, the supply trucks no longer come in into the core, or, or if that service is interrupted, I'm not going to have the land... Right. On a big lake, are you? Yes. There you go, then. Bob's your uncle. Okay. It'll go back to ship transport. Uh, I lived on the Ohio River when I was in high school. I lived in New Matamoros, Ohio, and it's a delightful little river town, uh, about 30 miles, 28 miles upriver from Marietta. And I could see where it would go back to to uh, packet boats, packet boats delivering goods and supplies up and down the river, I, I can see that, that a port community, whether you're on one of the Great Lakes, one of the Great Rivers, or here, we're right on the Gulf of Mexico, we're on the ocean, I think port communities are going to become very important. That's going to be a key to long-term success. I tell people, look at what the community was like 100 years ago, before oil became important, before there were trucks hauling everything in. Look at what the community was like before oil. Was it thriving? Was it was it doing well? Well, most port cities, and Toronto would have to be considered one, were doing well before oil because they had water access. And I think that's important. That's going to be important in the future 
is we're going to see a shift in how commodities get moved around North America, or around the world, really. But you're not going to see the container ships, perhaps, as we have across the Pacific. But I think you're going to see more localized transit, uh, more regional uh, conglomerates, I think you would call them. Uh, things are going to happen on a more regional and local basis, less on a global. But you still want to be, you want to be where the action is. You want to be where things are being delivered, where things are being made. And to run away and go off in the woods, oh man, that'd be lonely. Whoa. Now I think I'll stay here in town. How, how are the hospitals going to uh, keep their refrigeration units in that insulin cold? How, how are the hospitals going to function? How are they going to um, keep their refrigeration that units critical, going? That is one of the critical issues. And uh, if you go into a hospital these days and you look around, virtually everything is plastic. It is disposable plastic. I think we're going to have to get to the point with oil where we identify what might be termed the highest, best use of our remaining supplies. And driving your driving your SUV to Blockbuster ain't one of them. Uh, medical supplies are absolute top of the list. That is the most critical care thing. Uh, when it comes to using oil, that's the top of the list. Directly under that, obviously, food production. So if you only limit your oil use to hospital, to medicines and agriculture, medicine and food, we might not be doing too bad, but where we run into trouble is in the, I'm going to call it the discretionary transport section uh, sector, and believe me, I just made that up. If you look at, say, an airliner going from Toronto to wherever they go, L.A., let's go to Los Angeles. You have 200 people on that plane, not counting the crew. Of those 200 people, how many people on that plane actually, honestly, had to make that trip and had to do it had to do it by air travel couldn't take a bus couldn't take a train there aren't that many there aren't that many most most air travel is discretionary it's somebody going on vacation it's somebody just trying to pick up some time by traveling fast could they have done it another way most likely yes yeah it's called go to meeting there's no reason to travel business anymore there's a there's a there's a now a new program called Go to Meeting, uh, and you have video and uh, and audio, and you can uh, right. all online. You can telecommute. You can you can video conference. There's a thousand ways to do it without having to. You can actually sit down. And I know this is blasphemy. You can actually write a letter. Darn! Wouldn't that be great if people actually started writing letters again? I, I, I think they'd have to have classes on how to lick stamps. <laughs> actually, now they're all self-easy. Um, but yeah, I, we're going to have to go back to the old ways. going to have to go back to not just traveling all the time for fun and games and just because. Um, we're not going to have time for vacation. We're going to be too busy making candles and, and, uh, and canning uh, pears and apples. There you go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always joke that for me, a good day is a day where I don't have to go drive. Uh, but that's only because the traffic around here is pretty heavy. Uh, I, I do want to say one thing here right now, that, that when we talk about oil, and I, and I know people bill me as this great, all that crap, uh, we have a full-size pickup truck in the garage, and we do drive it. Uh, we have a motorcycle, a motor scooter, a lawnmower, a weed eater. So I am just as guilty of this conspicuous consumption as anyone else. 
Of course, we also have 37 bicycles that kind of offsets it, doesn't it? 37. All right, Chip, uh, stay with us. One final time out. We'll come back. A few questions remain for Chip Haynes, the author of Peak of the Devil, 100 questions and answers about peak oil. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Back with Chip Haynes. Uh, Chip, how are we going to heat our homes up here in Toronto? Are we going to are we going to chop wood? Are we going to uh, are we going to use solar heating? How are we going to do it? Everybody's going to have a different way of dealing with all this. You know that. Um, I don't think we're going to see any one thing come in and save the day. I don't think we're going to see any one thing replace oil as oil goes away. I think we're going to see a little bit of wind power, a little bit of solar power, a little bit of uh, ethanol, a little bit of hydrogen. A little bit of everything's going to do a little bit of it. But I think all of us are going to find ourselves staying home more and, and doing less. So it's going to be sort of a wind down. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of us are too... We're just way too busy, too much going on that we need to relax a little more. And this is certainly going to be it's sort of a forced relaxation, but uh, we're not going to be able to jump and run like we did. And uh, I know that scares a lot of people. There's a lot of people that just live to drive and, and to do and to go, 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 go. And we're going to see a whole new era ahead of us here. And I'm hoping it's good. It's not going to be good for everyone. If you were the uh, energy czar, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that you would want that job, but let's say you were, it was foisted upon you, and uh, you were the one charged with making the, the tough decisions right now. We're facing uh, peak oil. It's, it's, it's already here, or we're past peak oil, and we're into the un- unavoidable, inexorable decline. What are you going to do? What are your first priorities? First thing I would do is I'd make sure everybody understood what we were facing. It isn't a joke, it isn't a political ploy, it's not my political party pushing this agenda. These are the facts, Jack. This is what's going on. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by stop. We're not going to build a lot more roads. We'll maintain the roads we have, but we're not going to start building more superhighways. We don't need them. We're going to take that money, and we are going to rebuild the North American rail infrastructure so that every city of 100,000 or more has its own little trolley system that can be expanded, that we have intercity service between this city and the next city over, and that the major hubs become major rail hubs so that I can get on a train here at Clearwater, I can make my way over to Tampa, I can get on a main uh, overland train, I can go anywhere I want by rail, we're going to move all of our freight by rail, it's much more energy efficient. So we're going to have a rail system. We're going to start taxing gasoline a little bit more every month. Not much, just a little bit more. And we're going to use that income to help support the rail system. And uh, we're just, we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to downsize. We're going to scale back. We're not going to subsidize the airline industry because it's unsustainable. And I know that's going to, that's going to uh, be annoying and harmful. We're going to have a lot of people out of work 
because, well, the airlines aren't going to be able to run without oil, because that's all they have to sell is, we're burning oil for you. So it's going to get interesting, but I think rebuilding our rail system is a high, high priority. That is, that is critical. Um, making people understand that we have to do this is virtually impossible. It, it's just really tough to tell people, look, the, the oil isn't going to be here forever. The oil may go away. You may not have much warning. The longer it doesn't become obvious, the worse it's going to be when it does, because we're dealing with a finite resource. So the longer we use it at a steady rate, the bigger the drop on the other end. Uh, All right. Education is a tough thing, but that's what we really need to do. This should not come as a surprise to anyone. How about moving over from the energy uh, department over... Well, talk to me about food policy. You know, you, you talk to politicians, uh, none of them... None of the, uh, a food policy. What would, you, what would your food policy be? My food policy? My food policy would be to stop churning up farmland and turning it into suburbs. My food policy would be to try to concentrate the population in centers that make it easier to get the food to them. I would make sure people understood... Uh, the cost of food, where it comes from, uh, I would put, I would want to, boy, how do I put this? I want to differentiate between food and other stuff we put in our mouth. And before this goes all porno, let me say, I mean more like cheese doodles and, and snack food and, and things that they are not, by their very nature, nutritious food sources. They are something we do while we're watching television. Uh, I would want to put some kind of emphasis on real food to make sure people buy and use more real food and that we stop wasting uh, energy on, on, the, on the cheese doodles. Boy, I hope that's not a great name. <laughs> not to worry. Uh, but you know what I mean. There's yes. so much snack food out there. And yeah, it's fun to eat and it's tasty. And yeah, give me another bag of that. But uh, it's not real food. We're going to need to concentrate on real food. Like as I mentioned a while back, me being in St. Louis, the whole thing opens. They're making ketchup. They're not buying it in a bottle in the store. So it's going to have to go back to people who are going to have to do more than uh, nuke a dinner and eat it. It's going to have to be uh, more basic. And we're going to have to get back to basics because everything that isn't basic should be a little too expensive to be you know, usable. We need to get away from the, the junk foods, and I'm as guilty as anyone else on that. You know, I love my Pepsi and my Snickers, by golly, when I go out for a bicycle ride. So, but we need to understand that it's not a sustainable lifestyle. Well, Chip, I must say, you're. Um, I, I've talked to a number of, of peak oil uh, people, and, and you actually paint a far less bleak picture than than others I've talked to, and so this is actually kind of uh, uh, refreshing and a, and a positive uh, note to end on, uh, where it's 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 not all uh, you know cataclysm and and uh, you know end times uh, staring us in the face. So you certainly, uh, I think, have given us some hope actually, and and and. I think you make a good point that while the transition will be a difficult one, uh, change is always difficult. But on the other side, uh, if we can come out of it... I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. It's probably a barrel of flashlight, but I do see a light. Well, and, a, and a, I think a healthier uh, lifestyle for all of us. I, I don't think we're going we're gonna to have to get healthy. There's no way around that. We're going to have to walk more, ride our bicycles more, uh, eat better. 
so there are some pluses to it. There's also some down, obviously some massive downsides to it. Um, I'm hoping they balance each other out. All right, Chip, again, the uh, the book is Peak of the Devil, 100 Questions About Peak Oil. And uh, give us the website again. www.peakofthedevil.com Chip, a real pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Anytime, sir. Chip Haynes, back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Just a reminder that The Conspiracy Show on television makes its debut Friday, February the 18th, 11 p.m. on Vision TV. You'll have to check your local listings to find out where Vision is, where you are on basic cable. I know up in uh, Markham, it's uh, Channel 60. Uh, but if you make your way down to southern Ontario, where my mother is in Brantford, it's uh, Channel 27, I believe. So depending on where you are, that'll determine where you find Vision TV on the dial. It's a basic cable, so it's uh, available to everyone. And uh, I believe it's available in uh, somewhere between 8 and 9 million households in Canada. So we've pretty well blanketed the entire country. Again, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, making its television debut Friday, Feb 18th at 11 p.m. Eastern, every Friday night on Vision TV. And uh, in just about a week, I'm making my way to the United Kingdom, to the southern part of England, to tape an episode for the TV show on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, uh, which is known as Britain's Roswell. Looking forward to that. And also, uh, we'll be um, hooking up with famed vampire slayer, the Bishop Sean Manchester. Uh, to finish off an episode on vampires, and then on up to London to uh, to resume some uh, filming. So it's uh, it's great to get out on the road in pursuit of these great stories uh, for the uh, the television show. All right, the uh, the top space stories of 2010. Well, in the year 2010, humanity made first contact with extraterrestrials. Well, at least according to the sequel to the acclaimed film 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, nothing quite so earth-shattering happened in the real world this year, but space science researchers did make a number of extraordinary discoveries in 2010, including finding what may or may not be the first habitable alien world and uncovering clues to the nature of dark matter. The first habitable exoplanet. It was news we'd waited uh, years to hear, in fact, uh, that we might not be alone. And in September, astronomers announced that they had discovered an alien world in the habitable zone of its star, the uh, roughly Earth-sized planet called Gliese 581g, uh, nestles in an orbit comfortable enough for liquid water and thus perhaps life to exist. One of the planet's uh, discoverers, Stephen uh, Voigt of the University of California, Santa Cruz, said, 
quote, my own personal feeling is that the chance of life on this planet are 100%, end quote. However, doubts soon popped up over whether uh, Gliese 581G even exists. Astronomer Francesco Pepe of the Geneva Observatory and his team suggested that what the other researchers saw was just a blip of noise in their readings. Time will tell whether this tantalizing world is real or not. Asteroid dust returned to Earth, weighs in at number two. It was a mission crippled by several devastating blows, including a fuel leak, communications breakdowns, and malfunctions with its ion engines. But in the end, the Japanese spacecraft Hayabusa set a record. It returned the first ever samples from the surface of an asteroid. The 1.25 billion mile 2 billion kilometer voyage the spacecraft made to the silicon-rich asteroid Itokawa took seven years to complete. Hayabusa, Japanese for Falcon, was supposed to drop a lander on the asteroid, but the lander missed the space rock surface, and in the end, Hayabusa itself landed twice on Itokawa to force samples into its return capsule. The, uh, the probe made a fiery, fiery return to Earth on June 13th, with most of its burning up in the atmosphere during re-entry as planned. Its return capsule landed in the Australian outback, and researchers confirmed that Hayabusa had brought back some 1,500 dust grains from the asteroid. Weighing in at number three on the top space stories of 2010, arsenic devouring life question. The news that NASA would hold a a news conference to discuss an astrobiology finding that will impact the search for evidence of extraterrestrial life triggered wild speculation from bloggers and journalists. One of the most popular rumors in the blogosphere posited that scientists had discovered alien life on Saturn's moon Titan that lived off arsenic. The reality was less extraordinary, but still appeared intriguing. Researchers claimed to have discovered a microbe on Earth that can eat arsenic, a germ named GFAJ-1, uh, that can incorporate the poison into its DNA and other vital molecules in place of the usual uh, phosphorus. The find suggested that, l- that life can take on more varied forms than once thought, and it promised to open up the minds of researchers looking into signs of life beyond Earth. However, a barrage of criticism from other scientists has cast doubt on whether these microbes actually live off arsenic. It It, uh, remains to be seen whether these claims vaporize, uh, just as those surrounding the hints of life on Martian meteorite ALH-841 or 84001 seem to have done. Story number four, the sun woke up. After an unusually long episode of low activity on the sun, our star has apparently woken up with a bang, with powerful solar flares and massive eruptions that created dazzling aurora displays. Activity on the sun goes through cycles lasting about 11 years, during which sunspots, flares, and magnetic activity rise and fall. Puzzlingly, Uh, The last solar cycle, which ended recently, had an especially long and weak low point that scientists had difficulty explaining. The sun is now in the midst of an extremely active period after this lull, and researchers conjecture these changes might be similar to El Nino, uh, like climate patterns seen on Earth. Well, that's a wrap for our very first show of 
2011, and I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to media scientist Nelson Thal, who can be heard on Bloom and Steel, or I should say Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. Just log on to bloomandsteel.com. And also my thanks to Chip Haynes, the author of Peak of the Devil, 100 Questions About Peak Oil. Back next week, Sunday, January 9th, with a brand new show. My thanks, as always, to Dan Ellison. And in the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.